Hello and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Erin McCreary and I'm a clinical assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and the Director of Infectious Diseases Improvement and Clinical Research Innovation at UPMC. And if you're listening to our podcast today and you're a loyal Breakpoints listener and you're wondering to yourself, wow, Erin sounds kind of different. You are not wrong. I have been battling this like non-COVID non-influenza respiratory virus, but never fear, we are still on board for an excellent episode today. I really cannot tell you guys how much I'm looking forward to this conversation. Today, I'm joined by three leaders and pioneers in the antimicrobial stewardship space, and we're going to talk, quite frankly, a little bit about why antimicrobial stewardship can sometimes kind of just not be the best. And I mean that lovingly, but I mean it because it's true. And I think anyone who's done stewardship before can understand that sometimes the day-to-day can feel pretty grueling. Now, stewardship is something so many of us are so deeply passionate about, and we find a lot of reward in. But we'd also be insincere and not leaders of our field if we weren't honest about the more challenging aspects of this professional course and some of the steps that we think we can take to mitigate these challenges, or at least steps that the four of us have taken throughout our professional careers. So our episode today is going to focus on all of these Dewey struggles and how we, how we can coach programs to gather baseline data and use that effectively, because I think a theme you'll notice amongst all of our panelists is that letting data drive what you do is so important in feeling satisfied and successful in stewardship. We're gonna talk through common barriers to solving common problems, the art of communication within stewardship, and many more. This podcast episode was supported by BioMariu, and we are so thankful to our sponsors for supporting the mission and the vision of the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists. Now, our panelists today have incredible experience in this area, so with no further ado, let's introduce them and get this conversation started. So first, I am joined by Dr. Valerie Vaughn, who is a practicing hospitalist and a tenure-track assistant professor of medicine at the University of Utah School of Medicine. She's also the director of hospital medicine research in the Division of General Internal Medicine, Department of Internal Medicine. Her research focuses on improving the safety of hospitalized patients with common infections, particularly those with pneumonia and urinary tract infections. And she also serves as the hospitalist lead for the antimicrobial use initiative within the Hospital Medicine Safety Consortium, or HMS, which helps hospitals use their own data to improve the care of patients with infectious diseases. So I told you, we love data. And also, I just learned in our Breakpoints intro before we started recording that Val is an avid skier um, out there in Utah, and many of our other panelists are, in fact, quite jealous. So Val, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me here, and uh, happy to be here instead of out on uh, 10 inches of fresh snow. (laughs) He says... Maybe sincerely. <laughs> well, we're wow. happy. We're happy you're here. And as soon as this is over, you can you can hit the slopes. Um, and next is Dr. Jason Newland, who I'm pretty sure wants to be out in Utah with Val, but alas, Dr. Newland yes. is in. He's like, yeah, dude, don't even introduce me. Um, <laughs> alas, he is in St. Louis. <laughs> Jason I is. Interrupt you for like five minutes. What are you talking about? Please let me say nice things about you, please. Okay. <laughs> Jason. <laughs> Jason is one of my favorite humans. He is the professor of pediatrics, <laughs> a professor, not the. Are you the only one? No, I'm not oh, sure. Okay. No, no. You can even you can even skip that part. By I mean, way. I'm not sure who does Pete, really. So just kidding. I love That's Pete. Fair. I love all my Pete's friends. Um, Jason is a professor of pediatrics at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri. 
and he is the medical director of the antimicrobial stewardship program for St. Louis Children's Hospital. He is the founder and leader of the Sharing Antimicrobial Reports for Pediatric Stewardship, which is abbreviated SHARPS, one of those things where Jason like capitalized select letters to get where he needed to go. But that is a very neat national collab of over 50 children's hospitals across the United States. And I kid you not, Jason is one of my favorite people because when I was a resident, I was tasked with starting a stewardship program in the children's hospital at the University of Wisconsin. And I literally just cold called Jason and he was probably like, who is this random resident? But he not only hooked me up with the Sharps Collaborative, he taught me a lot about pediatric stewardship, about leading stewardship programs and has been a really cherished mentor and friend ever since. So Jason, I am so excited to have you on Breakpoint. Well, I'm excited to be here. I, I remember listening to the first episodes and you guys were fantastic and have done such an awesome job. And I welcome cold calls. So if there are people that are listening, you can always cold call me to talk stewardship. So, and uh, your voice sounds great. I don't know what you're talking about. And I bet your loyal listeners don't even notice. So anyway, I, thanks. I, I'm excited to talk with all of you guys. Val, Libby, this is, this is a, a treat and a hoot. I've been looking forward to it all day. Well, thank you. We appreciate that. And speaking of our first Breakpoints episodes, we are thrilled to welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Libby Dodds-Ashley, who was one of the first ever guests on Breakpoint. So if you guys want to check out episodes eight through 10, uh, which actually they were our first episodes, it's just like back then to launch a podcast, you had to have 10 episodes. So we released all the first 10 we recorded at the same time. So Libby, you're numbered eight through 10, but you're, you know, one through three in my heart. Um, but we talked about foundational <laughs> stewardship concepts way back then. And now here we are back again to keep building on that. So, so excited. Um, Libby is also a professor. I don't think the professor, I think there's many, no. but Libby is a professor of medicine of infectious diseases at Duke University. And she's a clinical pharmacist within the Duke Antimicrobial Outreach Network or DASON. Libby has been a pioneer in the antimicrobial stewardship space. She's worked tirelessly with government agencies and other regulatory bodies to advocate for resources and institutional support for the work of stewards. Most recently, she was awarded a CDC grant about leveraging National Healthcare Safety Network antimicrobial use option data to inform, implement, and assess antimicrobial stewardship activities. And we're gonna talk all about that today. And she's really just mastermind the use of data to drive interventions at hospitals and around transitions of care. Libby is also a past president of SIDP and we are thrilled to have her. So Libby, welcome back. Thank you. Yeah, you're too kind. I'm part of a big team, but I also feel like you forgot the most important part of Jason's bio. Oh. Which is, he is married to dear SIDP member, Helen Newland. And, and is, so he, he's really part of the pharmacy family as well. I did Thank forget you, that. That is a true statement. That is so true. That's exactly right. Like that's why I know many of you because of Mad ID telling uh, Helen on my way to there. So actually, I became popular with my wife when I got to say that I had met like Libby, you know, and Carrie and Susan and Mike Ryback. Like you know them? I said, yeah, I met him at this meeting. And they're like, ah, you're you're in. So thank you to you guys. <laughs> We're here to help you. But yes, of course, Helen Newland, an angel on this earth. So Helen, I'm so sorry. I did not mean to not shout you out during your husband's bio. You are clearly the most important part of that. <laughs> and with that, team, all right. So let's sit down for this discussion today. So again, I want to thank our sponsors by Mary who supported this episode. Um, and really, they supported it because of a professional desire on both of our parts to support frontline clinicians in their stewardship roles and ensure that they are credible, productive, and successful. And those are really admirable goals. And I think it's really important to have this conversation, particularly now, as we're seeing, honestly, a lot of people leave the profession after the pandemic and just 
experiencing burnout or looking for a change and not, you know, not knowing how to successfully move themselves or their programs forward. And that's what we really want to talk about today. Because I think any professional, that's what they want to do. They want to go to work. They want to feel good at what they do. They want to be good at what they do. And they want to make a difference. And I mean, I'm the first to tell you guys how much I love my job. I like really like taking care of patients. I'm really weird. Um, but I've seen the difference in how different antimicrobial stewardship specialists and different systems, especially during the pandemic, I started doing a lot of telemedicine with some community hospitals. And like, it just makes a world of difference to culture and the support your program has and how satisfied you are in your work. Um, and this work is not easy. And that is the truth that we're going to discuss today along with solutions. So listen carefully, everyone. And I, I think everyone listening who's done infectious diseases or stewardship, or honestly, even if they just work in any healthcare capacity at this point in time, they've understand some, they understand some of these struggles at some points in their career. And so we're here to tell you today, you guys are not alone and hopefully we can help. So first I wanna start talking about data. I know I've made that point several times thus far, but we should always let the data drive what we do. But getting reliable data is extremely challenging. So I work in a system where I have massive data resources and it still can be hard. And then I've worked with small community hospitals that you know they don't even know where to start or might not have resources to get these data. And then once you get the data, knowing what to actually do with it, we have to interpret it, we have to package it up and we have to utilize it. That can be quite daunting as well. So all of you have worked in systems, Val, you've worked in multiple systems. Um, Libby, you work with multiple hospitals as well. Jason, you work, I think, in multiple states. Geographically, we're still unclear about St. Louis. But um, so you guys have all done really great work, national collaborations, et cetera. So Libby, I want to start with you, but I want you all to weigh in. Can you start off by telling us how you help, especially your community sites, tackle this data issue? Yeah, and I agree. Data is so important. And I think what it honestly takes is you have to help people get over the hurdle and, and start with the data they have and build from there. So, you know, I'm in Dason, we go in, we have a data infrastructure, and that can take a few months to, to stand up at a hospital, sometimes even longer, but we don't wait for that infrastructure to be built. We start, everybody has some piece of data. There's somebody who's measuring something at every hospital and start there and, and showing people how to use their data and move forward. I will tell you, I think one of the biggest pieces of advice I've learned is I always used to have data envy, you know, oh, that big health system has better data than us. Or if you look at the European data, look, you can go on a website and see all the European data. And then when you go talk to the people who have the data, they feel about their data just the way I always felt about my local data, whether it was hand collected or a basic report, I ran out of Cerner or something I got out of the purchasing system. And I always kind of downplayed my data. Everybody I talk to does the same thing. So we're really all in the same boat. There, there is no perfect set of data, but we shouldn't let that get in the way of us moving forward and using it in some way. We can always make it better. I mean, we always should validate it. We should always make sure we're using true data, but don't let yourself get too down on the data source you have. Use it to build things. And that's a great way to get more resources for more data. Once you show data can make a little bit of change, I promise you'll get a lot more data from administration. That's so funny. When Miro Weber became available in Europe, Ryan literally came in my office and was like, Aaron, we got to publish our Miro Weber data because Europe has it now and they're going to beat us <laughs> because it seems like they do. Like there's bigger data sources and that is hard to fight against. Um, Libby, can you give us an example of maybe a smaller hospital that you worked with or maybe a more rudimentary data set? Like, because I think some people, you're saying, you know, everyone has some data somewhere, which I would agree with that. But for those listening that are like, 
I don't. Where's my data? Like, what are some examples of like, you didn't even realize that this was a data source and maybe that's where you can start to tap into. Yeah. So, and I'll, you know, maybe a more creative one. So first of all, somebody at every hospital knows where the money is spent. Find that person and they will have data. They always have better data than you. And, and for a short period of my career, I masqueraded as a pharmacy administrator. And you know what that allowed me to do is learn all the secret sources of data. So on top of that, there's other data sets that really speak to people. There's also someone at every hospital that knows which DRGs are the least reimbursed or most likely to get kicked back. And I found that to be very helpful for stewardship work because often they're infectious related diagnosis codes like skin and soft tissue infections. And while you might not have an intervention that's going to save a ton of money in cefazolin, boy, if you can have an intervention that helps avoid an admission that isn't going to get paid for anyways, all of a sudden that's a moneymaker. And so it really helps you right size your stewardship work. Um, but my my advice is follow the money because somebody, anyone who has access to the money data has access to, to pretty robust data if you feel like you don't have it anywhere else. I mean, obviously the, the cost data are not enough alone, um, but it, it really is a great place to start if, if you feel that you have no data at all. That's really good advice. Thank you. Uh, Val, I'm going to come to you next because you built a really awesome thing at Michigan using healthcare insurer payer data, I think. And then if I'm understanding that correctly, and then now you're starting at Utah and I'm sure building, you know, thinking about how to build new systematic programs with the networks that exist out there. So can you talk to us about that, like leveraging network data and, and how individual hospitals came together in that regard? Yeah, so, so we actually um, ended up going back to, I think, a very basic form of data collection, which is we actually didn't use electronic data or insurer data. I feel like people look at these beautiful dashboards that people have created um, and and think like that's the thing I want kind of kind of like Libby was talking about like we all want this thing that we see other people make but now I've been on the side of like these major academic medical places that have these beautiful dashboards but they don't necessarily trust the data they take years to build and then months to update and the data is kind of in the past and isn't the thing that they want the most and so what we actually did with the collaborative and what I would say has been the most important, both uh, with the 69 hospitals I worked with in Michigan and now at the University of Utah, we've actually done a whole bunch of chart review. Um, and that's because, you know, we get all of these data about like how many antibiotics are used. And then when you go to frontline clinicians, the answers or the questions they always ask is, well, what does that mean? Like, is that the right thing to do? And what we found to be very helpful is actually trying to create metrics of appropriateness for people. So not just how many antibiotics are you using, but how much of that antibiotic use is overuse or inappropriate use or shouldn't have been prescribed. And that's really hard to do from administrative data. We have a couple of projects we're working on at the CDC to try to do that electronically right now. But all of you guys know, if you're looking at big administrative data or even EHR data, it's really hard to say is that good antibiotic data or not. And so what we found is chart review was helpful. One thing that I think I, I want to say is a, as a word of advice is you don't have to chart review every single patient who comes into the hospital. What I would say is focus on high value targets. For us, we decided to focus on pneumonia and urinary tract infection as the top two infections that are treated in hospitalized patients. And then we just got two metrics actually endorsed by the National Quality Forum and we did a whole bunch of kind of reliability and validity testing. And one huge thing that we found out of that is actually in order to get reliable, accurate data, 
you don't need that many cases. We needed about 59 cases a year for urinary tract infection and 69 cases a year, uh, sorry, 73 cases a year for community-acquired pneumonia to get reliable data. And that allows you to track differences, compare yourself to others. And so I would say uh, whatever you need to do in order to get appropriateness data, for us, that was chart review. And then the second piece of that is to put it in context. Like, okay, so, so 30% of our patients with pneumonia are prescribed antibiotics for longer than they need. Is that better than nationwide or is that right? Are we doing well? And that's really hard to know in a vacuum. So um, that's part of the benefit of being in a collaborative is, and I love this for taking it to your hospital leadership and saying, look, we're the worst performing hospital in Michigan. We need some more resources for stewardship. That's super powerful, but you can only do that if you have uh, a comparison group. And so we offer that through our collaborative. If you use the tools that we have in the National Quality Forum, we looked at inappropriate diagnosis and antibiotic use and pneumonia and urinary tract infection. We have a range of values there. So you can see how your hospital compares to other hospitals. Um, and, and so that can give you an idea of where you perform to and uh, you know, are we doing well or not well in this to try to focus your efforts as well? That's awesome. Thank you. And Jason, you have experience in national collaboratives. So I, I guess, what are your comments on what Libby and Val have said thus far? And then how did that roll into your experiences with building Sharps? Well, I, I think it's similar. I mean, I think what the, what both Val and Libby said is is spot on. You know, we, we need data. We use data and comparing and comparing to one another is it not only helps you, but helps others at the same time. And I think it's just is on a bigger scale. I think in pediatrics, it lends itself to that, right? I mean, we, you know, these children's hospitals are around the country. We're not necessarily next door to each other or down the street. Um, and so that make and I would argue that makes it easier from a pediatric standpoint is that we have kind of these national children's hospitals that, but I think we in pediatrics have a lot to do about data that occurs in our community hospitals that aren't. And there's a number of kids that are hospitalized in the community hospitals that Valerie and, and Libby are in all the time. I think that's where we're, we're lacking. I will say that the other piece of data that we found to be helpful in the pediatric stewardship world is actually just describing what our stewardship programs are. So what were the FTEs that were being provided by to the pharmacists? Um, and we get asked now, I mean, I'm getting asked now, we haven't done a, a, a stewardship survey of our what our actual programs look like in probably four or five years. People want to know that because, you know, if one hospital is now up to two FTEs for their pharmacists at a children's hospital, well, heck, shouldn't we all be that way? When we first started doing the survey back in 2011, there was only two programs that had a data analyst. When we did the survey again in 2016 or 17, there were 16 hospitals that now had data analysts. I mean, you can imagine, right, if you have more people, just as it was stated, right, like Valerie's saying, and taking the data that you have just to show your program's working well, they all want to keep up with the Joneses many times, right? And so I think there is something about, you know, learning that. And I, and, and I think now, just as we continue to address, as I think we'll address later, some of the, um, the burnout we worry about that you talked about earlier, what does our workforce look like? You know, do we have diversity, equity, inclusion in our own workforce? What is that going to look like? How do we address that so that we start tackling some of the, I think, the harder issues in antimicrobial stewardship that we're scratching the surface on currently? And that's where I think this data, um, beyond just that, you know, day-to-day -day use to improve our antimicrobials in our hospitals with the appropriateness like we got to get there, Valerie, I'm with you. Chart review, yes, can work. Can we get it automized, please? But I think we have to kind of look at our programs itself 
um, to further expand and, and be better because I think that will make everything better. Charts, Ticky Wyatt. Did they actually get it in the ED or were they admitted by the time it was administered? It was ordered in the ED and all these kinds of things. Um, and yes, you find big data is good, but needs validated for sure. I, so, I also, can, yeah. can I say, so um, one of the questions that you had asked is about small hospitals too. And a lot of the hospitals we work with in our collaborative are small. And then I'm also doing a project right now, actually with the University of Washington with their critical access hospitals. And one thing I've found that's actually really cool is that you'd think that the better data comes from these large academic medical centers. But if you have a 10 bed hospital, you know, every, you can review every patient on antibiotics every single day, right? So um, I, I think some of it also is like learning what the strengths are of your hospital. And, you know, if you're at a really small hospital, you might get really good data just by recording on your, an Excel file somewhere what antibiotic stewardship recommendations you're making, the indications for antibiotics that you're doing, like your workflow is probably the best data that you're gonna get. And I've seen some really cool examples of really small hospitals that have really robust data. Um, and it takes you know maybe a couple extra uh, seconds, minutes as they're doing their actual intervention or review to, to just quickly jot something into an Excel file or into REDCap and then, a year later, they have all of this robust data to show how much work they've done and how much improvements they've seen. So some of this is actually thinking about what you're actually doing and whether the work you're doing at the point of care can be used to generate data uh, to prove your value and to, and to show you opportunities in the future. I think that's an awesome point. I, some of the community hospitals I work with, I would echo that. I, I'm almost jealous. I'm like, you guys get things done so much faster because Committees are smaller. Everyone knows each other. If there's 50 patients admitted, they know everyone in every bed. And, and so um, stewardship is almost easier in a sense And that it, you have these intimate relationships. You know the patients really well and you have stronger relationships with a smaller provider pool. So I think that's a really good point. Okay, so talking about data and along the lines of data and the pros and cons of different things, I think one of the biggest things that's coming and before every podcast, we always pull select members of our team and SIDP to see what people are interested in and what they want to hear about. And the thing that resounded when I mentioned the themes of this episode were the this impending sense of doom and the, the knowledge that the AR option reporting is likely going to be required if it's not across the finish line by 2024, which it probably is, um, you know, it's coming, but the that is, it's one thing to make that mandate and another to actually operationalize it. And we've seen this before with, with things that come out federally, especially it sounds really good on paper, but then the actual logistics of getting meds to patients or getting data into systems is very, very, very challenging. So Libby, why don't you start here as well? What is this requirement? What does it mean? And is this impending sense of doom appropriate? Yeah, all good questions. So first of all, I want to say that to everyone, it's going to be okay. And, and I just want everyone to think about what we're going to get from, from all this work is, is eventually a lot of comparison data. So for all of you that are out there saying, gee, I wish I had data like others have, we'll, we'll all have similar data on the horizon. That's going to take a little while to get there. And, and I'm not going to say it's going to be push button. Um, but what we're talking about is the what's called the final rule. It, it's how hospitals get paid. It comes out every year. Uh, this final rule was published in August. Um, and if you pull that up in the Federal Register, I think this discussion is around page 49,000. So some light reading. Oh, good. Yeah. yeah. 
Jason, did you read the first four, eight, nine, nine, nine? You want to fill? Well, us usually that's what I do before I go to bed, right? Like you got to yeah. stay up to date so that I can be on this podcast and like do my job. Uh huh. Yeah, that's how I used to feel about the aminoglycoside two hundred and forty page document from USCAS. I used to read it as a bedtime story, but now I've moved on to the forty nine thousand yeah. page federal registry. Yeah, a good thing is, is you can search it easily, but um, this is part of what used to be called meaningful use and now is called the interoperability uh, program. And so starting in calendar year 2024, AUR, so both antimicrobial use and resistance, both sides of that, are going to be required for the majority of U.S. hospitals. Uh, there are a few exclusions. I think there are three exclusions. Like one is if you don't use um, barcode med administration. Um, one is if you don't use antibiotics. If you are a hospital that doesn't use antibiotics and you're listening to this podcast, I want to hear from you personally because um, I have to come there and, and just take my picture or something. Uh, and the good news is, is that for there was a draft rule put out and thanks to the many comments, we actually got an extra year. It was extended by a year to get to this goal. Now, so this means we have to do electronic reporting. I know the number of U.S. hospitals has gone up exponentially in the past few years that can do the antibiotic use side. So that probably doesn't seem the big lift, um, but microbiology data are messy and it's hard. I mean, we've just gotten over that hurdle. It can be done, but what I really want to put out there is, so, so this reporting will be required and it is in the payment structure, right? So there are people, again, with money who really care about this. And I've spent a bit of time trying to figure out, so what does this penalty mean for a hospital? And not a lot of people are willing to share, but I got a little bit of data. And I'll tell you that even for the smallest of hospitals, it is in the millions of dollars. And for a health system or a large academic center, it's in the tens of millions of dollars. And so what that means is, one, you know, in our Dayson network, we're getting asked questions about this from high-level people at these hospitals. So, so those people read these documents that are hundreds of thousands of pages because it has to do with how your hospital gets paid. But when you know the volume of revenue or payment from the federal government that is in jeopardy, that actually gets you some support. So if it, you're one of the, those hospitals that really wishes they had, you know, AU reporting, but haven't had the dollars to for the infrastructure to build it out, this might be your chance. So look at this as a big positive, because the ask you have to get the data analyst or to get the external software you need to get this reporting done, all of a sudden seems a lot cheaper when you're looking at a millions of dollars of penalty instead, if you don't do the work. So this is not something that should be the job of pharmacists and our very trusty Excel spreadsheets. Uh, you should not be reading about HL7 and how to report it, as I, I get calls probably once a month from pharmacists trying to do it themselves. This is not a DIY project. This is like a big contractor come in and do this for you project. So try to leverage those uh, potential penalties for your facility to help get this done. And don't make this your hobby on nights and weekends, which I know many of my stewardship pharmacist friends are always willing to do to get the data. Um, but, but I really think this is a, a chance that this has been put in here to actually build the infrastructure to get this done. And, and so go after some of that support. The no Pinterest boards for AUR reporting. Um, <laughs> Jason, Val, anything to add to that? Well, I think it's important. I mean, we need to get to this, right? We need a national kind of way of benchmarking when it comes to resistance. I think it's going to be challenging. Um, I think what that what the data means as we get it out will be challenging to interpret. Just, just as we went through the ups and downs of learning about the, you know, the SAR, the Standardized Antimicrobial Administration Ratio, I mean, we're going to have the ups and downs that always happens when we're trying to put in place a system that's going to make us better in the future. 
I think we, we would all, we all would agree, right? Like to know what's happening when it comes to resistance around the country, whether it's the E. coli grant, you know, resistance to, you know, common agents. Um, if it's going up to oral agents from a pediatric perspective, I want to know that, right? I want to know if I'm getting pushed into something else that we don't typically use. And we need this data. I, I think it's, I just think we're gonna have to be willing to get over the hump, do what you do. And I, Libby, I love what you said, right? Like it's gonna take professionals to get this to work. And then it's gonna take us to understand what all this data means. And we're gonna have to work together. Thankfully, the reason I love stewardship is because of people like you all, and we'll work together and we will, we'll, we'll tackle it and make it better for those who come and take our places here in the next 10 years, or at least my place. All right. Um, do you know, and Libby, you might not know this and that's fine. If you don't, um, I can cut this section out if we don't have a good answer. That's the beauty of breakpoints. Um, labs that are not on updated breakpoints, when they, which is very common, right? And we know Romney has data showing this. I know this personally from working with 35 hospitals. This is again, a community and critical access problem. But um, if they're not using updated breakpoints, is there a penalty for that? Or like, do they just report, as long as they're reporting what they have, we're gonna deal with that? Or yeah. are you gonna, like basically if you have the wrong breakpoints, but you report, are you still gonna get penalized because the resistance isn't accurate? No, so actually it's pretty quite clear um, somewhere around page 50,000 probably. I actually- don't Oh, know. I didn't get that far yet. That <laughs> yeah. was tomorrow night's reading. Okay, um, all right, jumping ahead. But it, it is pretty clear about what you have to do to demonstrate that you're submitting the data. Okay. Um, and, and it is, you have to submit a file and you have to have a report that proves you submitted a file. Um, it, it doesn't go down to the level of saying, tell us which card you're using to be sure it's on current breakpoints. Okay, but that is going to be that that's going to be on us when we get the data back right it's right. going to be on us to know that difference. Right. And I know that that's going to be a bummer in some ways, but we're going to have to remember and use that in interpretation and just remember you know today people might say you know we can log into the patient safety portal that is published by the CDC and look at data on resistance across the country. But if you did, if you drill down, you know, I look at North Carolina data all the time. And when I looked at ESBL E. coli, I think there were 49 isolates for the whole state the last time I looked. Right. It doesn't help that much. But now we'll have, I mean, I do antibiograms for all of my hospitals. And I know that that number, even for the smallest, is in the six, 700 range. We'll start having all that data. We'll get so much more robust data. And we're just going to have to keep our thinking caps on about where the limitations of the data might be. Right. The thing is, we're, we're all used to that, right? Like, I, you know, I don't have one hospital completely updated on breakpoints yet. So we, we need to remember, we, we got this. We are smart enough to know how to handle that. Um, and, and we will get there, you know, and the, the breakpoints are catching up, I will say. We've had three hospitals convert just um, at the first of the year over to updated breakpoints. So I'm encouraged, you know, by the time we get there at the end of calendar year 24. I'll um, change them again. <laughs> yeah, well, fair, we'll yeah. change them, but we'll at least have, you know, maybe 2022 breakpoints. Right, okay. That we're working on that systematically too. I was actually hoping this was an extra motivator, uh, more resources for the micro lab. It, it's challenging to change your panels and validate and all. It takes a lot of work and it's like pharmacy tech shortages. I mean, there's micro lab technology shortages. That's, it's, it's a real problem to, there's a lot of things we want to do on the lab end that are on the list, right? So I was just wondering. So thanks, that's really helpful insight. Okay, let's talk about positive things now after the, <laughs> so I guess actually though, the takeaway though is that no, we should not have an impending sense of doom. This is all in all going to be a good thing, but like all good things, it's going to require some hard work up front. 
But in the end, I think it is going to be pretty tremendous nationally to be able to use and compare these big data. Okay, but you guys, as I've said before, are superhumans in the stewardship space. I want to know where you started, because I think a lot of our listeners are currently maybe at the start of their careers or have been in a role for a while and are wondering kind of what's next for them or where they can go with stewardship. I know speaking specifically from the pharmacist end, sometimes that pharmacy is an incredibly rewarding career, but you start as this clinical pharmacist, you're doing this specialty work, and then unless you move into administration or other things, it does sometimes feel like you're not quite sure where to go. And you guys have all gone really big, really cool places. So where did you start and what was the biggest lesson you learned along the way? I don't, I don't necessarily want you to like, tell me about like this failure or something, but more so like, um, like a project you started or something you started in stewardship to did and just what you learned from that by, you know, all the bumps in the road and the way projects can totally take a different direction from when you originally started. So I don't know who wants to start with this question, but I think this will be really insightful for all of us. Jason, why don't you start? You're like grinning over there. <laughs> okay, so where to start? Well, um, where did you start in your career? Uh, and then what was the biggest lesson yeah. you learned along the way? Yep. No, I like this question a lot. Um, so I started, so out of fellowship um, in 2006, I started in uh, Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City. Um, in fellowship, I actually was in basic science lab doing virology, but I always found myself wanting to learn more. And I like the antibiotic stewardship aspects of my fellowship. So I left the lab and said, I'd go start a stewardship program and, you know, didn't know what I was doing, but thought, let's go do it. So I actually started the first, my, the first program I was able to start was in, was there on March 3rd, 2008. I actually remember the exact date. Um, we did a perspective audit. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I didn't, I don't know if I knew what I was doing. I, I, I knew that I needed to talk to people. Um, I knew I needed to be very good at communicating and I really wanted to do it to where there was a lot of collaboration involved in, in retrospect, I think that was my intent. Um, did I do it all the time? Probably not. Um, but I know that when I moved to St. Louis that, you know, and, and especially learning from like Sarah Parker, who really coined the term, who coined the term handshake stewardship and going to watch her do like, you know, that's exactly what I really was after was kind of the, you know, really creating this model of, you know, as a stewardship person, right, you get called like things called police and all this stuff. And, and I would be like, if they called it to my face, I was happy about it because I knew they were willing to talk to me. And and so I would say that I think communication has always been the biggest thing. And and so I, I would say in many of the projects, when things have failed, it's when I didn't communicate enough. And, and I'd say I something just recently happened in our own stewardship work as we're trying to tackle you know, the use of vancomycin, improve the use of vancomycin, and actually use it when you should use it instead of maybe switching over to things like daptomycin and septarelline. I mean, I think we're running into these sorts of issues. And, and, and I'll be honest, I failed miserably in this recently and that I didn't have a conversation that I should have had months ago. And without having that conversation, it was going to be a hard conversation. We all know that you're doing stewardship. You just got to have some hard conversations. I think in those, you think lead with kindness, be kind, be okay to disagree, but remember, kindness is really, I think, in the end, the way to go. And I just didn't have that hard conversation with somebody that I, I should have had. Um, and it blew up in my face. It blew up in my face really badly. It caused a <laughs> lot more heartache than was necessary. And I'm like, gosh. And it, and and the problem is that it, it had so many other downstream effects on so many other people. I'm like, you just would have talked. Yeah. And, and so I guess I'd say that I think the biggest lesson I've the lessons I've learned is I, I still believe strongly communication and collaboration for those in, in talk, 
have the conversations, be willing to have some of them. They're not always going to be fun. You're not always going to have one that makes you feel all warm and fuzzy inside. And there's going to be some hard ones, but in the end, I think they've always, not always, but 99% of the time have turned out better when I've been willing to do that. Yeah. I, um, one of the greatest things I learned in my residency was to like basically prep your meetings or stage your meetings before you have them, especially if you're a resident, like bringing a guideline to PNT, like our program director taught us, like you meet with every key stakeholder and voter, not everyone, but the ones that are going to have an opinion before you bring it. So by the time you bring it to the meeting and have the meeting where you discuss it, everything's already been decided. And that has been very good professional advice, especially for antimicrobial stewardship, because it's helped make projects go a lot smoother. So you don't get to that point where it's like there and then it just blows up because this one person feels like they weren't talked to prior and that, you know, and then they make it very, very difficult. So all the trainees listening, stage your meetings. Valerie, how about you? Yeah, so obviously my career path is into stewardship is different than most everybody else that does antibiotic stewardship is I'm a hospitalist. So, you know, Hospitalists yeah. are the people that we yell at about antibiotic stewardship, not the ones doing it. So yeah, we um, love you. I love calling <laughs> you. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, so so I'll tell you why I originally got interested in stewardship, and then kind of why I stuck stuck with it. And so, you know, I think I had a patient experience during residency that has really stuck with me around kind of an adverse event from antibiotics and. Um, to set the stage, I was in, uh, I was a, a senior resident in one of our uh, hospitals, and I was on overnight, and the way that this hospital works was that there was nobody else on with me. Um, I didn't have access to an ID pharmacist in the middle of the night. Um, I technically could have called. I was, I was working in the ICU. I technically could have called my fellow, but waking your fellow up in the middle of the night is kind of frowned upon. So, you know, instead, I felt like it was me in this entire hospital by myself, although that's never true. Um, and we had a patient who had pneumonia that was decompensating. And I remember going to the guidelines and, and the guidelines are like, well, if someone's decompensating, you should double cover them for pseudomonas. And um, I prescribed tobramycin, I think for the first time in my life, like in the middle of the night. Um, and so I'm like sitting there on my own, like calculating the guy's GFR and calculating the dose I need to give to him. And he gets the tobramycin and um, I don't know if it was the tobramycin that saved his life, probably not, but he did survive. And a few days later, I was there when he woke up and they extubated him and he was deaf, newly deaf um, and couldn't hear anything that anyone said in the room. And I just remember slowly like backing out of the room and like disappearing from the ICU for a while. Like I couldn't, I couldn't be in the room with him knowing that like I was the one who had made this man deaf. Um, and uh so I, you know, it really got me interested in antibiotic stewardship and in patient safety in general, I'd always been interested in, but that was one of the things that got me into antibiotic stewardship. And I remember it moving forward when I'm talking to clinicians, like we're all trying to do the right thing. Um, you know, no physician is out there saying, I just like doing the wrong thing and hurting people. That's why I got into this job. Like we're all trying to do the right thing. And um it's really interesting, actually, to study why people overprescribe. They overprescribe because they're afraid that in the middle of the night, someone's going to die because they didn't do anything. And so their their response to that is, let me do everything possible, like throw the kitchen sink at this person and hope that they survive until morning and ask questions later. And so when you when you think about it from that point of view and you think about like why 
prescribers are doing what they're doing, why they're overprescribing. Um, I think gives you a little bit of empathy and maybe some understanding when those conversations are more difficult. Like if you're arguing with a clinician and trying to say like, you shouldn't be doing this, the guidelines don't recommend it, or, you know, they're trying to do what's best for their patient. Um, and I always use it too, to, to refocus antibiotic stewardship away from the antibiotic resistance problem, which I think is hard day to day for clinicians to care about. Like we care about it on a grand scheme, but on a day-to-day -day thing, we care about our patient making it through the night. But I refocus more on those side effects, you know, and the fact of we now have data that shows treating asymptomatic bacteria keeps patients in the in the hospital longer. Uh, you know, that uh, if you prescribe an antibiotic to a patient in the hospital, one in five will have a side effect. Uh, that giving vancomycin and zosin together probably increase the risk of acute kidney injury and maybe even mortality for patients, even if they have, uh, you know, MRSA pneumonia. So there, there's a lot of data out there right now, actually, that show that for your patient, in many scenarios, broader, bigger uh, antibiotics don't necessarily help and can be harmful. And so I remember that and try to focus on that based on the fact that that patient and the tobramycin have like stuck with me for a decade now. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. I think that's a really meaningful and important story. Um, and I appreciate you sharing that with us. Libby, where did you start? Um, I literally started doing stewardship in a different century. So I don't think we need to go all the way there. Um, <laughs> that would be the 1900s, right? Is that right, Libby? Yeah, long time ago. It was so a uh, fun fact. I actually came to Duke uh, for to do my PGY1 residency to be a cardiology pharmacist. That was my dream oh. and my goal. Um, but I realized after working with great cardiology pharmacists, pioneers in the field, I, I just, you know, it, it was a lot of knowing which problem you're seeing and always doing the same thing. And when I did my required ID rotation, I loved how it was so different. You know, it was always like a puzzle to get the right thing for the patient. Um, but that being said, when you sort of asked about, you know, what is, what is your failure? I've, I've had more than I can count. You know, I think I always tell people the reason people talk to me about stewardship is because I failed every way possible and I'm still learning more ways to fail. And, but the, one of the biggest things I learned, you know, at one point in my career, I moved from here to Rochester, New York, and had to step in there as a stewardship pharmacist. And, you know, that was really interesting because, it, it was different. You know, they practiced medicine different. They did different things. The pharmacy role there was different than it was here with my ID colleagues at Duke. Um, but I learned a lot. And the, one of the biggest things I learned, I think kind of echoes on what Valerie was saying, is that it was from the physician there who led stewardship, Paul Grayman. And he always told us to remember, nobody gets up in the morning to misuse antibiotics. And so we have to listen to them about why they're using antibiotics the way they are and help right size it. And I'll say that when you go into it that way, it'll be pretty humbling. And I remember, I remember in Rochester, there was one unit, I won't divulge the unit because it will give away, but there was a provider who ran this unit and every single patient was put on prophylactic fluoroquinolones, every single one. And it like hurt my heart. It just, and, I, and I, everything we did, we'd meet with him, we'd talk to him, we'd send him papers, we'd have other people talk to him. You know, we would always sort of be like, why? And it, it, it was, again, this passion to not have patients get super sick, as has been discussed. But I remember, and, and maybe this is all, you know, kind of getting to some of the positives. We had a fantastic surgeon who we recruited to stewardship, honestly, over a very sick patient where I was like, if, if we need to continue vancomycin beyond today, we at least need a chest x-ray. I remember talking to him about that. 
And he's like, oh, you're so right. Joined our stewardship team was great. Well, this fluoroquinolone prescriber was one of his colleagues. And he literally just asked him one day in the locker room, what's with all the fluoroquinolones? And he's like, why do you even care? And this, our stewardship surgeon said, well, gosh, you know, like that's probably why we have C. diff and all these other things. And he was like, I, I never thought of it that way. Never put a patient on fluoroquinolone prophylaxis again. Literally like a switch went off. And, and that really made me realize, you know, so true. You know, I, I considered it a failure. You know, I felt like I was just sort of banging my head against the wall. Mm-hmm. It was my fault. I wasn't thinking of different ways to look at it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there, I, I promise I've failed more than everyone, mostly because I'm old, but uh, you have to just kind of. I'm not sure. Things. I think I got you beat, even though I'm about, I don't know how many years behind you, but it might be a few, <laughs> um, even though I don't look like that. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, I, it's, it's part of it. I was going to say, you know, I, I think Libby, you said this in your intro that I think it, and that I wanted to, I meant to say this, you know, you know, Aaron, you're so kind and calling us superhumans. I, I think Libby said it well. He's like, you know, we we really are a product of all this, this this team, right? Like, I think that it's the teams of people we've been able to work with. I think the surgeons are prime example. Libby, the reason it worked is, right, you and I both know, is that you had this relationship. And that, that relationship with this person actually led to the end result. And and I, I think from my perspective, right, we talked about Helen here. But like the, all the pharmacists that I've had the pleasure of working with, whether it was the first pharmacist that came work with me, Leslie Stack, and then Diana Yu, and then Charisma Patel, and now Christy Hanks, and all of these wonderful pharmacists and the teams really have, I, I'm, I'm really the one in front of all of it, but they're the ones that have really made it work, right? Like it's all this, that, that work together. So, um, I, I, and I was going to say, Libby, I think that's it, right? It's the team, like you said at the very beginning. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Sorry, Aaron. No, yeah, I I think those are excellent points. I think two think a couple things I heard that I want to pull out and emphasize there is one meeting people where they are and and to Valerie's point to Libby's point like all of her points everyone that goes into healthcare wants to help people no one wants to do the wrong thing and so framing stewardship not as chastising people but as explaining you know the pros and cons to different decision makings and that you just want to collaborate with them we all you don't know what you don't know and we all know different things and we all have to make millions of decisions every day I think there's data on learning health systems that you know we make millions and millions of millions of uninformed decisions every day because that's just the nature of it and then when you compound complex diseases like sepsis uh, there's so many decisions that could be made in so many permutations. It's, it's overwhelming for a single human. And we are human. Uh, the other thing I, I'm laughing with you too, because I mean, when I have my students in residence and they're like, how did you know to do that? I'm like, because I screwed it up last year. So now I know you email the lab committee <laughs> first before you talk to anybody else. I only know that because I did not email the lab committee and that went poorly. So email the lab committee. Um, and just all of those things. So most of like most of our knowledge bank is developed from messing it up the first time. But let's flip it now. So thank you guys for that. That was really insightful, really meaningful. Thank you for sharing those stories. But now let's move into some more positive things, so some success stories. But particularly, we want to hear about a time you were really successful with with a stewardship initiative, but maybe it deviated from what the national guideline says exactly to do or the national standard. Or it wasn't like the classic approach, because I think where sometimes people get overwhelmed is like you read these guidelines or you read these standards and it's like, I have to do this black and white letter of the law, especially pharmacists, we kind of think that way. And it's like, but I can't because I'm missing like this tiny little variable and therefore like I I cannot do this. And I think like the cap guidelines really get me and I, 
I know the CAP guidelines are a tremendous effort, and I have the utmost respect for the CAP guideline authors. We have an excellent episode on CAP if you want to go back and listen to it, January 2021 on Breakpoints. Um, but the CAP guidelines basically say, like, treat your, pa- treat your patients with CAP based on your local risk factors, which, like, sounds awesome because, you know, precision tailored therapy is, like, a good idea because CAP in Pittsburgh is really nasty, and I'm sure CAP in your neck of the woods is is much nicer. But like, I'm a pharmacist reading these guidelines at a hospital and I'm, you know, struggling with who are my data resources, where are my people, whatever, maybe I'm on outdated breakpoints. It's like, how do I even, how do I know what my local risk factors are? How do I even begin to determine that, et cetera, et cetera. And then you feel like you're a failure because you're not, you don't have this like super refined, validated list of local risk factors. And then you're like, I can't possibly write a CAP guideline. But meanwhile, maybe you look at your CAP data and to Valerie's point earlier, if you're tracking your daily interventions, maybe you're a 400 bed hospital in rural Pennsylvania and like your days of therapy for CAP are four days and 90% of your patients are an AMSCL back cam. Like that's pretty darn good regardless of whether or not you know your local risk factors. So I think that's my question. Sorry for my long-winded rant about CAP. Um, But like so what's a stewardship project you did that you're really proud of, but it wasn't necessarily by the book. You customized it to what local resources you had available and you made it great. Valerie, why don't you start? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm happy to take this one. I think it builds off of a lot of things that Jason and Libby have already said around like the team and talking to people. Um, and then also talks a little bit about, you know, you know, I think when you go and you do your first stewardship project, you're this gung-ho, like, uh, you, you almost come into it. In my case, I came into it with like a predetermined, predecided solution. And that's like dead on arrival. If you come in and you're a single person and you're like, this is how we're going to do it, guys. Don't worry. I've, I've read all about it. And I can tell you what all the research shows. And everyone's going to laugh you, laugh you out of the room. But I was really lucky because so I had done all of this research and put in all of this work into being like, this is the discharge intervention we're going to do to improve discharge prescribing at our hospital. And um, I was lucky in that I ended up teaming up with some clinical pharmacists who uh, worked with the teams and basically were like, okay, here are the parts that are, good, that are gonna work, here are the parts of that that are never gonna work, and here are some additional solutions. Um, and that collaboration was so powerful. And it was, it was funny because one of the things I'm most interested in in stewardship is diagnostic error. And I, early on recognized that one of the things my clinical pharmacists were not comfortable with was challenging physicians about their diagnosis. So I like immediately had to scrap like a large part of the project in order to focus on the lower hanging fruit, which was, you know, changing the spectrum of antibiotics, changing the dosing and changing the duration. Our pharmacists felt comfortable doing that. They were not going to challenge physicians about their diagnosis. So part of it is meeting people where they're at, finding the low hanging fruit, establishing that trust and that relationship, the early wins so that, you know, we could we could show that they were able to improve duration and spectrum of antibiotics, and then maybe later on nudge them into to looking more at diagnosis and things like that. But that was like the funnest project I've ever done, but also the one that ended up going completely different than how I'd originally planned. That's awesome. Thanks. Yeah, that's great. I, I see, you know, I, I'll think of it, I got two examples. Um, one's on a national standpoint. Um, and, you know, I would say that pediatrics, we 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 kind of taught you adult people how to treat CAP, right? Like you could actually do penicillin. And so, you know, when our guideline came out in 2011, you could do ampicillin and you can, right? Like, I mean, you guys know this now, <laughs> yeah. now in the adult guideline, right? Like it's now in the adult, now we don't have to use Levo all the time. Anyway, okay. So I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. 
Thank you, um, Jason. But, but, we we owe you a debt of gratitude. Yeah. It was all the other guys that did the guidance. But that guideline actually was interesting in that, you know, a lot of us had been doing ampicillin for uncomplicated pneumonia. But in the guideline, they said, well, if you have a certain rate of, you know, resistance to strep pneumo, that you probably shouldn't. And we're like, what do you mean you shouldn't? Like, we've been doing this. And how are you going to know that you're above a certain percent? Or like, I, I find that that's a really tough thing. But it was almost kind of, to me, like, well, that's our hedging our bet and it's keeping a group of the people probably on the guidelines happy that there's an out for not using ampicillin for uncomplicated pneumonia, which I found, but, but we did it and we were successful and I'm not sure that we saw it. So I'd say that, you know, that was, you know, there, there wasn't much. And I, and I find sometimes when we, in guidelines and we've been a part of guidelines, when we establish certain percentages of resistance means I have to switch or do a different empiric antibiotic. Well, that, that's that's an expert group of people deciding that was the percent that they're uncomfortable with, whether that was for skin and soft tissue and you think MRSA and you want to use Clinda versus back or whatever. And you said, well, if it's above 10%, I can't use Clinda. I said, well, that, that's somebody's opinion that that's what their risk, risk tolerance is. So I, I find that just an interesting debate that you can have on all of those numbers. But I'll say the other example is locally. I'll so say before you get into your second, the only, the only people in the world who like unintentionally advocate for clindamycin use or pediatric people. We know, like, we know. We're the only ones that know how to use I'm it. like laughing because you're like, I can use Clinda. It's 60% resistant. It's a good drug. Osteo. Well, again, I will say, man, in a I will say we just ran our hospital. osteo length of stay data and our length of stay for osteo is like two weeks, right? Like it's bad. We're working on it. But like the children's hospital, five days. I'm like, see, they go home on Clinda. No one cares. Right. <laughs> Get them well, out. Well, there we can... That's a whole nother podcast, but, but I will say, right, this gets to this another notion is that locally, right, there are local standards and there are local standards within ID groups. And I can't imagine like you guys know, Valerie knows better than anybody, right? She has this local ID person who's like, oh, you're going to do IV antibiotic for like ever. And you're like, uh, but I could really do oral, right? And I think that if you look and especially among stewardship people, and we actually, we surveyed a group of stewardship ID people and stu non-stewardship ID people. And we asked, hey, would you steward your ID colleagues? Guess what? Nobody wants to steward their ID colleagues, even if they're a stewardship ID person, which I find a major problem in our field. Whole nother, whole nother episode. But with that being said, right, the things we really pushed on when we went to a new place was orals for osteo, right? There's a lot of places still that says, I got to do IV forever. Well, no, there's tons of data showing that the risk is much greater, right, with the adverse events when you keep pick lines, and especially in these acute hematogenous osteomyelitis in children. So I think we've been successful by using some of the, obviously, data that was out there, but also going against what a local standard is, because you have some efforts. And I, and I think there's probably many people out there that are like, yeah, I'm at this one place, and where I was previously, we did orals for you know, osteomyelitis, and we switched them early. Um, and, and I think that's probably, you know, when I was talking to Christy, our pharmacist, um, she was like, yeah, you should talk about how you do orals because you even make me uncomfortable with sometimes how you use oral antibiotics. I said, yeah, and it works, so you're okay right now. Now that's, you guys can determine that later. It's definitely a comfort thing. I think people, you know, have read the data and understand it. It's just, it's so different than what they've always done. And there is, you have to respect, again, meeting people where they are, culture, and, and, and people's comfort level and move them slowly there, right? You can't like bulldoze people over to get your, your mission accomplished here. Um, Libby, what's your favorite project where you didn't follow the rules? Gosh, um, that's hard. 
there's so many, you know, it's like picking <laughs> your favorite child. Um, you can do that too, if you want. Yeah, I, I don't, they probably don't listen. They, no, sure. no, the reality yeah. is we all have our favorite children. They just change at different times of the year, right? Like you, there's always someone that's their favorite at one point in time. Yeah, you know, I, I think it was an early stewardship project I did. It was here at Duke and it was it was a HAP VAP protocol that we did. And there were a lot of aspects to it, but, you know, we were trying to do, you know, mini BALs that we could have earlier discontinuation of therapy and try to hit that eight day discontinuation target based on the Pittsburgh data. And, you know, we brought it in and I remember, our ICU was like, eh, maybe, but <laughs> we, you know, what we really want is we really want to cycle antibiotics. And we were like, we're not a fan. Um, so we came up with a compromise and we let them cycle antibiotics, which included letting them have meropenem when it was meropenem month. We looked at all our susceptibilities. We, everybody thought we were crazy, but we said, look, you know, if, if we're going to do this and make sure it works, we're going to have to have following. And so it was a little non-traditional, the approach we took and we, um, but we got permission to have an ID fellow round with the ICU one day a week. Oh, and fine. you know, this, this was back also probably in a, in a different century, but even though it was non-traditional, you know, we unrestricted an, an antibiotic that had no business being unrestricted on its month that it was in the cycle. We weren't huge fans of antibiotic cycling. Um, but at the end of the day, we, we did two assessments. So one is the pharmacy administration said, you have to prove to us that you're following this protocol. And so I had a great, actually for the summer, I had a pharmacy student um, that the, the pharmacy paid. They were so worried about this crazy thing we were doing that they paid him to help me do an assessment. And when he was done, we did we failed to follow the protocol. We only followed it 14% of the time, but he looked at every single element of the protocol. But when you looked at the things that we actually did well, it was okay. But on the other side, when we looked at it, we used a lot less antibiotics in the ICU. The antibiotic use went down. You know, we, we stopped early. We stopped in patients who weren't being treated for pneumonia because we had that ID fellow grounding in the unit. Um, so maybe we didn't always result the, the mini BALs in the time we were supposed to, but we still stopped antibiotics. Meropenem use didn't go up in its months. You know, it, it was really quite interesting. And over time, we looked at this for a few years, we... Um, actually saw increased susceptibilities on the unit to the gram negatives, which which is all a win. So we did nothing the traditional way. And it was really interesting because when I came back to Duke after being away for uh, almost eight years, you know, the group doing stewardship then was like, why is there this cycling protocol in the ICU? And I was like, I totally understand why it sounds crazy. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> at the same time, we did a lot of good with it. Yeah, some institutional yeah. memory. I love that because you introduced stewardship and ID into the ICU culture, honestly, even though it was a non-traditional pathway, which is important. And that leads me to our last question before we get into our final and most funnest segment of the podcast. But the last question, and this also came from feedback we solicited when we were getting ready for this episode. A lot of our listeners are out there starting programs where let's just say the soil ain't exactly fertile, right? So they get trained in, in, in programs. If, if you have a residency training program by nature, you have more resources, right? You have teaching, you have preceptors who are qualified to teach you. And so you're in that environment, whether that's academic or community or whatever, but then maybe you go take a job where you're the first stewardship pharmacist or physician ever. And this, we, have a, we have a physician fellowship stewardship training program at Pittsburgh. And so some of our physician graduates are going and starting stewardship programs, you know, and, and they've never had it before or, they had a guy and that guy left and it's been five years and there was a whole pandemic in there, things like this. So 
soil isn't fertile, meaning stewardship isn't necessarily in the culture. They may or may not have data. And um, especially in sites where there's a lot of private practice people too, and Val, you might have great insights on this. Like, so your physician group isn't necessarily cohesive. You have hospitalists that are a part of the health system, but then you have private practice. Some of our sites, the patient's PCPs will come in and round. They have rights if their patients get admitted and they only see that one patient. So you're trying to make a stewardship intervention, but that person was there for 15 minutes that morning. And now they're literally practicing in like an outpatient clinic and you can't get a hold of them, all these kinds of things. And so stewardship isn't within the culture. It's not a collective identity. And for new grads, especially, or people who are starting new jobs in new places, I feel like this is daunting and hard. So how do you speak to these growing pains and encourage people to find joy in their work and the motivation in starting small? So even if that looks like I'm just going to implement an IV to PO protocol, which maybe where you came from that they did that 25 years ago, but your new hospital doesn't have that. And that's so important. What's your advice for those people and their subsequent growth? I can take this on. I think um, one of the first things you should do as kind of a new person in a new place is is find your buddies, find your people. Um, and there will likely be somebody out there who, when you talk to them about stewardship, like understands, hears you, or maybe there's some element that you have in common. And I would, I would start with that group, that person, that change agent, because um, it's hard to do something alone, to come into a place and be like, I'm going to fix this entire hospital, right? That's, that's impossible for one person. It's going to make you enemies. So find who your, your buddies are going to be first and collaborate on something. And I've actually found that at many places, because there's less red tape, because things are smaller, because there's only one person whose opinion you have to change, sometimes things can be easier, uh, but you just have to find the right thing to focus on. Because maybe it's not changing that one surgeon's mindset who's never going to change and they're going to retire in a year anyway, so you should just wait for them to retire, right? Maybe it's not that thing. <laughs> But find the low-hanging fruit that and comes with friends and people that are on your side to start because it's going to be hard if the first thing you try to do is, is just going to break your spirit. Um, so find, find your buddies, start small, um, and you, know, you can often move mountains by convincing one person, finally getting that guy to stop prescribing fluoroquinolone prophylaxis to everyone in the entire unit. You know? so, so find who that person is that, that you can really have an influence on. I, I totally agree, you know, and, and really starting small is not a, a bad idea. You know, the other thing I always tell people when I get the phone call is like, well, where should I start? I don't know what to do. And I was like, ask whoever wrote the position justification for that document. You know, what was the, what was the burning problem that got your job approved, especially if, if you're brand new to a program um, or if you're replacing someone who left after a long period of time, ask people what was what was the most successful thing that previous person did? And then go after that. Um, there's usually a roadmap somewhere. You just might have to look for it a little bit. I feel that I my position at Pitt when I started in 2018, I was a second stewardship pharmacist, like an add-on position. And like, why why did I get added? It was antifungal stewardship. They're using millions of dollars of isaviconazole, and it was come in here and get all these patients off isaviconazole. I was like, I can do that, and I did. And that's pretty much for eight months. All I did was look at transplant patients and get them off isaviconazole and document that. And then once I did that, then I was able to do a lot of other things. Um, and so I think that's really salient advice. I've forgotten to add one thing that I think is really important too. The other thing I found at smaller hospitals is that often there's 
more ability of pharmacists to actually like input medications and write medications for docs. And the reason I think that's important is because often the reason that PCP is not responding to you when they're at clinic is because for them to log on to the healthcare system, make the change, think about it in between patients that they're seeing in clinic is really hard. But if there's a way for you to figure out how to make people's lives easier in stewardship, like, oh, I've noticed that this patient is on IV when they could be on oral, you know, I can write that oral prescription for you. Is that okay? You know, it, it minimizes the amount of work they have to do. And, and there are certain practice agreements that I've, that I've found are more common the smaller the hospital is that you can actually do that and help. Uh, and, and that I think can also, if you can make uh, a clinician's job easier, they're far more likely to like agree to whatever recommendation it is. So that's the only that, other thing is like learn, learn what the practices and, and legal rules are at your new position, because you might be able to do some things that you weren't able to do at your prior place. That's an awesome, awesome point. I have two examples to piggyback on that. Um, one community hospital I worked with, we had a private doc who was a pulmonologist who would come in and they would call and call and call and call and he would just never call them back. And so the pharmacist got really dejected and they're like, he hates us. He won't call us back. He never returns our calls. It's impossible to intervene on these patients. And one day we sat him down when we kind of started helping with the surgery program. And I was like, what's your preferred method of communication? I know you see patients at multiple sites and you have an outpatient clinic. And he was like, can you email me? And then I can read it. And I know my patients and then I'll respond to the email and give them permission to enter it via verbal order or whatever, or written, whatever order. Um, and they can just change it. And I was like, great. So we coached all the pharmacists to email this provider instead of call and, you know, intervention wait, rate went through the roof. And then the other, um, there's a hospital system in, in Louisville, Kentucky, that I think they have four hospitals now. So they're all community hospitals, but they're larger. So they're big community hospitals. They have Epic and they actually have a stewardship program where they go through, they write notes, the pharmacists do, and they pend the antibiotic recommendations as changed orders to the provider. And if the provider doesn't act on that, so the provider can go in and sign them. The provider can go in and reject them or the provider can go in and change them. But if no action is taken in 24 hours, the pharmacist verifies them and puts them through. And that's their policy and their protocol. And I, they've um, won like best practice awards with ASHP for this and other things. And the stewardship team there is pretty incredible. So yeah, I think that's an awesome point. There are these really creative ways where you can make people's lives easier and still get done what you need to get done. And Jason, finally, I know you're chomping at the bit there. I, know. I, I really no, want to hear what brilliant. you have to say. No, no, Isn't I, that a cool I don't program? Yeah. Oh, that that's brilliant. Yeah, it's I, a cool I program. Meet those people, that's brilliant. No, I was just gonna yeah. say that. Um, and I, again, not not someone that's gone to a lot of small hospitals though. Grew up in a small town. Um, I think it's important if you're going to a new place to be a part of that new place. You need to be a part of that new place. I think it it can really rub those people wrong that have been there for years when you all you talk about, or if you talk a lot of, even if you talk a little about the place you just came from. Well, at so and so place, we did this. And, and I think it, it, cause then you, you start being like someone separate and they don't feel like you're actually a part of them. And I, I found that even as I switched and moved over, I, I knew I had to be very careful about it. And when I, when I slipped, oh boy, did I pay consequence for that? Um, and, and I, and I think it's just, it's important that you are, you are them, right? You, cause they want someone that's with them that really wants to be there. And I, and I, I don't know, I feel like that's always been helpful to remember that as you're going to try something new, as you're coming from something somewhere else. I think that's super important. I made that mistake too when I transferred institutions because you you pull with what you know and you become a 
at Wisconsin, we did this. And, so, and no yeah. one wants to hear that. Yeah, no one, easy, no one easy in Pittsburgh cares what we did in Wisconsin. Let me yeah. tell you. Like, they really don't. You almost need to just say, hey, let's try this. I, I think this might I have work. An idea. You don't even say where it came from. I know. In a way, though, it's a humble, like, I felt badly suggesting something that wasn't my, it's something I was trained in or the institution did before me. It wasn't my idea. So I felt like I had to give credit to the idea. But then you just are making everyone mad because you're only talking about your old culture, which is not a good move. I agree. So I definitely have made that mistake too. Um, all right, time to move into our favorite and last segment. But before we do, I found, I wanted to give credit where it's due. So that stewardship program where the pharmacist penned orders and if they're not accepted in 24 hours, they just act on them, um, is Norton Healthcare System in Louisville, Kentucky and Ashley Wild, Matt Song are the pharmacists that lead that program. And then Paul Scholes is their physician leader or was at least at the time that this rolled out. So just giving them that shout out because it is a really cool program. But okay, the time has come, Breakpoint's break faithful, for the I Feel Nerdy section. I Feel Nerdy is meant to be a safe space and a closing segment for our panelists to nerd out over their favorite ID topics, quirks, and fun facts. So for today's I Feel Nerdy, it's a two-parter. I want you each to share one, what antibiotic you would be if you were an antibiotic and why. I suppose you could also be an antiviral or an antifungal. That is fair. And then two, the one thing that you would recommend that a steward would should advocate for resource-wise? So if you were going to die on a hill as a stewardship leader or program person or frontline person, and you're like, we don't have this, you need it to survive, what is that one thing? Jason, please start us off here. Okay. So I think one of the best parts about being in antibiotic stewardship is when they come up with these names for antibiotics, right? Like these trade names are so fun. Like, who doesn't like to be able to say Zofluza for, like, Biloxivir? I mean, like, that's so fun to say. How can you ever forget that drug name, right? Zofluza. Now, that's not my favorite because there is a new antibiotic that actually, I can't believe it, was referenced by you earlier, Aaron. I was like, no way she just said that, right? Because I've been so excited about this segment all day, right? Because Miro Weber, right? Vabermere. I'm like, who doesn't love <laughs> like I'm Vabermere, right? Because it makes me think of Star Wars and Darth Vader, right? So Vabermere is totally what I'm going for. All right. How's that? Well, I feel it? like you look so whenever I get to talk about CMB on this podcast, I get really excited because I love it. And I have been told that I like get really excited. I feel you get like red and excited. I feel like now I understand how I look when I talk about CMV because it's how you look saying that you are the essence of vapor beer. <laughs> I mean, that is like so fun. And and then I'll, the last thing, what would I advocate for? A oh, pharmacist. I mean, that's, that's a don't Aww. break. Like you, you got to have pharmacists. And, I, and, I, and I'm advocating for another one all the time. And it's, but yes, pharmacist, 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 pharmacist. Well, thank you. We love that. Uh, Valerie. Uh, so to demonstrate just how nerdy I was, I will say that this is the question that I did the most work like for ahead of time to try to figure <laughs> this out. Uh, so I actually found a little known fact that in 2020, Brad Langford created an online quiz, uh, personality quiz about which antibiotic are you as a way of trying to get out the message about antibiotic resistance. So I took his quiz as part of this uh, preparation for today's show and discovered that I'm in fact moxifloxacin because I'm both a hard worker and I can make your heart stop. So that's me, I'm moxifloxacin. Um, and then, I mean, 
Jason stole my thing you need to advocate for, which is always a pharmacist, in particular an ID pharmacist co-lead or leader or someone who can just be that person that helps you. Oh my gosh, I think that's the most important thing in the world. But if ID pharmacist is already taken, I will say uh, someone to help you with data. Since we started this episode with data, I think uh, data is your friend. And if you can find somebody to uh, find resources to help you get data, that is really, really helpful. Um, thank you, guys. And Libby, last but not least. So it's hard. I, I've, I've, I've been asked this before. I've done Brad's quiz. I've gotten different answers on different days. Um, but I, I also thought long and hard about this today. We talked a lot about it in the office. There have been some very fun conversations in the hallway. Um, Glad you guys all did your research on this. <laughs> a lot of time was spent it on was this. So, um, uh, you know, and and I think I have to um, just to get at my friend Mike Smith. I think I have to say stuff to him. What a sleeper pick, Libby! <laughs> That's fantastic. That's the winner. That's fantastic. Good call. Oh my gosh! Um, I, you never know. You you never know. You know, but uh, I would pick Seftonir. Great once a day drug. Every pediatrician loves it. What's not to love? Um. I can't even, I, I feel like Amanda Hurst is like rolling over and going to call us up and, now and, 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 and boycott and the podcast. ID, yeah, any pediatric ID pharmacist and physician listening is going to be like, oh my goodness. But being, knowing Mike Smith, I think it's brilliant. I totally support you and you being Stephanie. And I might call you that next time I see you in person. <laughs> um, and then in terms of resources to advocate, totally agree. So you need, you need a great team. And I will just add that one thing I would die on the hill for is you need a microbiologist, you know, microbiologist to help you implement your interventions to help get, you know, you, you brought up the breakpoints. Like we need that microbiologist member who has time to sit with the team. And it's a, you know, just as a sort of unsolicited comment, you know, we hear a lot about how many infection preventionists are retiring. I haven't seen hard data on what's happening to our microbiologists, especially in our community hospitals. But I'll tell you, I've been to three retirement parties since the start of COVID, and there's nobody to replace these people. And so I, I, I just can't advocate enough for it. They are an invaluable resource, and it's something that um, we need to do better to help advocate for them. Because even when we have a microbiologist, they often don't even have time to, to come sit with us. So having that person and giving them time to be part of our stewardship work is essential. I definitely co-sign that. It, that's a field where you just experiences everything and seeing and knowing things. And I feel like it's, it's there, just the glue that holds us together in a lot of our stewardship initiatives. But yeah, that was, I was, I know you want to end yeah. it, but I was going to say, you know, one of, and you can cut this, of course, um, you know, Libby, one Jason's of the, like, we're I never say, getting off of break points. You're never getting done. Everyone's <laughs> you want to leave. Sorry. But, you know, I was going to say that Chrissy Hanks, our pharmacist and the adult ID pharmacist, um, Elizabeth Nooner, they set up and, 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 Reb, and Rebecca saying, Becca saying, who was our, at the time, stewardship director, now is a chops. They decided, Hey, we need to have a, a meeting with our micro and it's the best meeting. It's absolutely the best meeting. The most things get done, the most solutions happen and i that's just it's actually brilliant and i'm so glad you said that and i want to give credit to those guys because it's been very impactful for us at, at our system they are amazing everyone is i like I, I think the underlying theme of this is that stewardship is definitely a team sport and i think we learned a lot about that today and with that thank you for listening to breakpoints the society of infectious diseases pharmacist podcast 
Thank you again for bearing with me and my profound nasal congestion throughout this episode. It made saying stewardship quite the challenge, and I sincerely appreciate you all listening. This podcast episode was supported by BioMariu, and we are so thankful to our sponsors for their support. This episode was hosted by Aaron McCreary. Breakpoints was created by Julie Ann Justo, Aaron McCreary, and Jason Pope. This episode was produced by Drs. Jillian Hayes and Jeanette Bouchard. It was peer-reviewed by Drs. Jamie Kizian and Allison Fields, and edited by Dr. Sasha Premraj. Our production team includes Drs. Veronica Zafant and Justin Moore. The executive producer of Breakpoints is Dr. Kate Desir. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke. You can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future.